What's up, y'all? Four transplants on the microphone coming to you from the old Mecklenburg Brewery. Oldest brewery in Charlotte, I believe. Second biggest. It's pretty great. We got a fantastic guest today. A longtime friend, longtime listener. Uh, he knows the name of the show inside and out. And let me tell you, we're in, we're in for a good conversation here. We've got small business per usual. We've got Charlotte per usual on the agenda today. Today, we're only three transplants, though. I've been Jack Tompkins with Pineapple Consulting Room. We've got co-host. Brandon Spirit Data Solutions. And we've got Kevin Buckets Monahan joining ooh, us. Ooh, ooh. Kevin, how are you? How you I, I, this is crazy. I've never been to a podcast where there's just been one microphone. Yeah. Isn't it great? In well, person. Our first We're, run at this was a single microphone. Yeah. yeah. It was in <laughs> the middle you, of the table. <laughs> for those of you listening, we are face-to-face-to-face to face around one microphone. Yeah. That's why, yeah, it's, it's, it's intimate. We get, we get close pretty quick on this podcast. Any guests, we're at the lifetime relationship after this. I just need you to know that. We're going to have you sign some paperwork pretty yeah. soon, too. Yeah. Happens so. at the podcast, stays at the podcast. Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we broadcast it to the world. <laughs> uh, so, Kevin, thank you for coming, man, in all seriousness. I, you've been a, a great business partner, a great referral partner for me. I know we run a lot of the same circles. We do a lot of the same groups now, too. We're talking about you, Kevin, the author today. Kevin Buckets Monahan, the author. So tell us about the book. What's going on? Yeah, Buckets was, me and you started about the same time, Jack. I think yeah. we had a similar journey in that we started our companies around the same time. I believe I gave you the name Pineapple. That has the, been well documented, yes. Not the name it, it itself, but I made it contagious. Yes, Pineapple Consulting was all me. When everybody, any, when every, Every, mm, I can't talk at all today. <laughs> Whenever anyone calls me Pineapple Jack, that is because of you. Yep. Yeah. That was sticky. It <laughs> immediately too. Yeah. Yeah. People go Jack, and I'll go no Pineapple Jack. They go, oh yeah, I know him. <laughs> and then everybody remembers it too. Yeah. But the, I don't even know your real name. That you shouldn't. There's no point. Yeah. I'm getting it legally changed. <laughs> Birth certificates in the mail. <laughs> yeah. I so wanna, might want to rethink that. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I think it's going to work out great. <laughs> So we did. So Buckets was, was what I called a concept that drove what we, we did, kind of like Pineapple Consulting. I just related it to Buckets, but Love it. it was a methodology that helped me communicate what we do for people, the impact that we can have. Right. And so Buckets, How Business Legends Keep Their Hustlers, was born. And that was a, a really good way for me to build authority positioning by having a book, get on speaking circuits, get on podcast circuit so we had i think our our initial one i was doing some podcasts yep i got in trouble for doing some <laughs> podcasts but i was telling you about how it helped build story connect with clients and what was really nice for us was it was a means where all of a sudden all across the country people were calling in mm-hmm. uh, and then i think i introduced you and then you took off and pineapple jack took off and and here we are. Yeah. Do you have your book yet, though? No. No, I've been no, no. Can't you. read. That's tough. It's, um, but you, you do speaking, though. <laughs> I do speaking, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's, how's speaking going? It's going all right. It's a little slow. But I've got, I've got a good, solid, like, a, I could do a straight speech for 30 minutes. I could do a workshop for an hour and a half. And I'm working on a three-hour workshop, too. Okay. What, what's, what do you like about it? I've always, not always, I used to hate this as a kid. You guys might be saying, I don't know. But when I was a kid, I was petrified of public speaking. Like, even... The Even worst. when they, they they would go around in like middle school or whatever, and everybody would raise their hand and say here when they were doing attendance, I, I would I did a just quick raise hand, boom, done. Here, couldn't stand it. Now, I guess a little bit in my corporate world too. I got up in front of people and I led the intern program, so I was presenting to 250 people just because I had to, Oof. and it was a blast. I decided let's just be a little bit ridiculous, 
let's mix in some humor. And it was so much fun. And now I absolutely love it. And now, partially because of you too, I've weaved in some stories into there too, because obviously selling to the subconscious, as you talk about a lot. I want to deep dive into your business mind too, because you have a very good business mind. But talking about those stories, getting a laughter and engagement from the crowd, so much fun. Plus, it positions me as the expert in a field that not a lot of people are. I, I haven't cracked that one yet. I, I, still, one? I get people laughing at me, not with me. That counts. That's all right. It is, but it's not as exciting as getting them to laugh with you. <laughs> if they're signing the paycheck, that's all right. Either way. So how do you get them laughing? How do you make the audience laugh? I got a lot of pineapple material. Oh, yeah. low-hanging fruit. Egg, uh, well done. <laughs> See, you can make it work. <laughs> now, do, do you, is, it, is it staged? Like, is it come in with visuals on a slide? Are you setting up jokes with story? Are you hitting quick hits off of topical stuff I'd, I'd stay away from topical because okay. one it could go there's no way yeah. like a political or social thing to it <laughs> It can go sideways very fast exactly <laughs> yeah we don't want that i'm talking about data not how to run mm-hmm. the world so i have a couple jokes that i like kind of queue up and set up but for the most part it's just as a stand-up comedian would call it like crowd work like interacting with the crowd and like making a joke based on what we were just talking about and everybody's a big fan of the callbacks. If we're talking about retention, for example, and then it comes up later in their presentation, it'll be like, oh, like, don't talk to this guy about retention. And it's, you know, it works out. Okay. So you just roast the front row, you go to John Rickle. <laughs> yeah, and right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, your family must hate you. Let's talk about it. <laughs> now, when you go, when you put together your 30-minute or your hour, yeah. your hour and 30-minute, mm-hmm. how do you structure it? How do you, when you go into, so if I hired you for a, 90 minute mm-hmm. what theories do you have behind how to bring a presentation forth and, and what strategies are you using a lot of consistent engagement part of that comes from laughter i think because that if people are listening then they'll laugh at the joke if they're not then i can get a sense of it but it's a lot of just making sure they're engaged throughout so the entire it, thing is the engagement based on the presentation in other words do you have like slide slide and then an activity that they're doing with their partner or you're going into the audience good question i if it's a workshop it's the hour and a half workshop that you were referencing then we do have specific times where i'm going out into the crowd and saying all right what do you think your main kpi for your financial division of your company okay let's all right what about you for marketing and the you know building a conversation there but there are some that I do, I'm working on this for the three hour, where it's, let's give you an example. Here's a data set, here's a thing that we're trying to build, whatever. And now you go do it, and I'm gonna, you know, we're gonna do this like kind of a classroom session. Yeah, people like that. That'll yeah. go over very well. So, the hope. so what, so, so let me break this down. This is great. I love getting interviewed on my own podcast. This is fantastic. <laughs> oh, I'm interested, because this is, this is a fun topic. Yeah, no, it is. So. You're building a, let's just say, a three-hour workshop. Okay. So when you come in, what are you going to open with? Joke. Okay. <laughs> Do you really? Yeah. Okay, what's the opening joke? So I, you know, I go, hey, I'm Jack, blah, 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 whatever. And most, so obviously pineapple consulting. So what do you guys think most expensive pineapple ever purchased? Oh, Oh, low-hanging what fruit. This what do you think? Brandon, he's cheating. Give me a dollar amount. That's a good, that's a good, this is good. Yeah. The most expensive pineapple, I'm going to say it's probably like a diamond pineapple somewhere. Let's go 2.8 million. Edible pineapple. Real most, pineapple. Oh, real yeah, yeah, pineapple. Yeah, yep, real pineapple, yep. Sold. Does it, 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 are, are we putting things on it like gold nope. or diamonds? No, just a real nope. pineapple. 14th mostly. century, I believe. Let me go with $8,000. It's a pretty good guess. Brandon, anything? I've 
He's, he's close, I'll give you that. $12,800. $12,800. I won, I didn't go over. Yeah, you did. You got the price the right place. And so I start with that and be like, oh, like, that's weird. Why is he telling us this? My favorite fact about that is it is the most expensive pineapple I've ever purchased to be eaten. It was grown in horse manure. So something that seems super unappealing, fruit made from crap, can actually be incredibly valuable. Much like data is very unappealing for most businesses, but can be oh. the key to your success. Yep. Open. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Boom. Done. What are you open with? What are we talking about? When you're I've tried a lot of different openings. That's yeah. what I was asking. What do you like? Sim- very similar story. A lot of times I open with my experience on The Office. So on the you were on the office on the television show the office you were you were you a writer what are you doing did you do you know or are you asking I mean I know the, the office I have no idea what you did you didn't know I was on the television show the office no you didn't know this you were you I were was literally li- that was my one of my first jobs you were an I'm actor you what'd you do I thought you were pandering the audience with no. this question no you, no I I'm just pandering know. Brandon <laughs> <laughs> so so I was a I wanted to be a comedian. So I wanted, like you said before, I had a fear of getting on stage. Well, yeah. I went. I wanted to be a comedian, and so I thought the path was try to get on SNL. So after nice. after school, I went and I was going to go do Second City and try to get on SNL. Went out, moved out to Los Angeles, sleeping on my college roommate's floor at the end of his bed, and trying <laughs> to get a job, and looking to go on stage. Got on stage and bombed. Talk yeah, about like it. I mean, that sent me away from stage for a long time. Yeah. And it was, so I said immediately after bombing on stage, I don't want to be a comedian. I want to be a comedy writer. There you go. Just so I didn't have to speak in public anymore, really. (laughs) No one could see me. (laughs) So we went to, so I wound up getting on America's Funniest Home. My first job was actually on Fear Factor, and I worked for three days there. But it was outside, you know. Kevin, eat this spider. I'll give you $700 if you eat this spider on camera. Is, is this like, Joe Rogan giving yeah. you 700 bucks? Yeah, for- <laughs> 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 literally. So it was, I worked there for three days. I had fish guts, you know, fish sitting in the shade, and then the sun moved, and then it heated it up, and Kevin had to go open the thing, and the fish guts exploded all over. It was, and just sweating all day. It was, all that in three days. Three days. There's, no, there's no onboarding period. That's just, here's a spider. Yeah, here you are, yeah. Here you are. Just, just whatever people need done, I had to go do. So very quickly, they called me back, and I was like, nah. I wound up getting a job at America's Funniest Home Videos. Great show. Yep. So then it was open. You know, at the time, we didn't, you know, today it's all digital. But back then, you, did, you had to be recorded your videos on a camcorder. Yeah. And then you sent a copy into America's Funniest Home Videos to try to make $10,000. Today, you just need 10,000 likes and you get paid. Right. So we, in the meantime, I was trying to get on a real comedy sitcom series, and I wound up getting on, in season one, television show The Office. Wow. So, so I open with a story of, I tell a, I tell a story of a, a friend of mine who's, who had a career as a, well, a professional athlete. And he was now running a construction company, and he said, I don't like that everybody always talks about my, and introduces me as a former athlete instead of as a business owner. Mm. And I say, I have the same problem. I used to deliver coffees. <laughs> and, he, and he's like, how is that the same problem? And then I say, and then I show a picture of me with the staff of the office, and I, and I say, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the fact that I could get coffees that made me famous. It was who I was getting the coffees for. And then to this day, my parents... You know, they won't introduce me as running a company. They'll say, or an author, or a speaker. They'll right. say, 
my son used to work on the office. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then, and then I transitioned that into, you know, so to Steve Carell, who was, I didn't know it at the time, but I was standing next to one of the all-time key employees. Mm. And, you know, somebody at NBC had the foresight to go and, and make it very expensive for Steve Carell to leave in the first seven years of the show. And it was a good thing that they did that. Yeah. Because right as we were shooting season one, before it even started airing, 40-Year-Old Virgin came out. Oh, wow. Steve could now make more money in six months than he could make in the six years he, his contract was. But because of that contract, he stayed true. The show was able to get that business flywheel going. Because of that, the profits came in for years and years and years. And then I said, and then just like you with your pineapple and data is worthless to you, but it could be worth a lot if you knew what to, to, to make of the mess. Right. Is I say most business owners have no idea how to create this in their in their own firms right. is, a, is a similar system. And, wow. then we, and then we go down to how does somebody create, make it painful for somebody to leave. And that's how we start out. And that's why you're all about retention. So a trend, you know, more business topic. I'm assuming that's a very legitimate story and did it inspire or did it like guide you in any direction to get to this whole and we'll talk about what bucket yeah. is in retention, but did that, did that transition you to the career that you have now? No. Okay. So five years into the office. You're still there. I'm still there. You're still coffee Season guy. five, yeah. This was, you know, oh, I, wow. always, I always tell people it, was, it wasn't Steve Carell leaving the show. It was me leaving the show that started his downfall. <laughs> but, but it was... Direct correlation. <laughs> hey, prove, <laughs> prove me wrong. Yeah. The numbers, the numbers line up. People aren't caffeinated. This, They're going to go be bad. Yeah. This is what you can make data say anything you want. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so so he, I left and I went on to another show, which was Parks and Recreation. And you have the, to the same show, yeah. Basically, it was, it was the writers were going over, so okay. very similar style, similar comedy, different setting, different people, and so I could. This was also at the same time. I can't believe how long it was ago it was now, but like 15, 16 years ago, maybe. Yeah. When reality TV was coming on, so three judges were now more powerful than were three times less cost and can produce the same results on TV. So comedy writers were just like out of work everywhere. Huh, okay. So when they were adding comedy workers, they were adding people with years of experience. There was no real room for somebody new to, to get a job. Yeah. So I could see the writing on the wall that this was going to be an industry going through retrenchment period. And it's, it's kind of just come back in the last few years. But it did go through a dark period where it was very difficult to get writing jobs. Yeah, and you're good seeing that too. Because, I mean, right now we've talked more like today with AI and all this other stuff, like you're very good at seeing the big picture of all of the industry and where things are going and good and bad and all, and all that. So you were in LA for all this stuff? So I was in LA there. And then if you're going to give up on your dreams, pineapple, you got to do things that are crazy, right? So I couldn't go and sit behind a desk and just think of, hey, I, had, I left my dream of being a comedian. So I went crossed the planet and right. moved to Shanghai, China. Right. When I moved to Shanghai, China, I worked at a company that was a victim of a key employee walking out and taking everybody with them. So right as I got there, and again, I, didn't, I was getting coffees two months earlier, so I didn't have a, enough for even a flight home. Right. The whole company that I just flew out there to join had left. 
And wow. so, so the owners came in and they said, hey, if you help us build this back up, we won't make the same mistakes with you. We'll give you equity and profit sharing plans. Not bad. For a sounded good. 26 year old, whatever you were, I don't know. <laughs> right. It sounded good, right? Yeah. It sounds. How, how did you make the leap from being in TV to rebuilding a company? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where did they laugh. I missed a step somewhere yeah, yeah. comedy has a, a, a lot of laughter this was a this was a very young company and China was at this point where to be honest for it, China was just coming out of the communist era I mean it, it basically they, they changed paths in you know in 1980s they started doing a, lo, a lot more foreigning up foreign investments and and opening up and becoming the, the manufacturer of the world. But then they went through another level in the 2000s, which was when I went out there. Now, for, <laughs> for my industry, it was a consulting industry, but no consultants were being paid to go out there yet. So it was a bunch of young kids. We were all in our 20s. It was a bunch of people in their 20s who were just out there who, who went out there and saw this amazing country being built up. At the time, it was extremely capitalistic. And you went out there and you just wanted to stay. Now, the only way you could stay is if you, if you were working there. So being a consultant was a way that a lot of kids went out there, traveled there, said, I want to stay here. And then they became consultants. So it wasn't like this professional company that you would have. Okay. <laughs> it, was more, yeah, it was more, you know, I, I, it was really funny. Somebody described it. They said it was kind of like if you look, and I, it was kind of like the scene in Wolf of Wall Street when it's like all those guys getting of misfits getting together it was kind of like that where it was it, the company was a bunch of people who were traveling who so wanted you had the ambition you could get get the job right okay. oh, oh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> nobody came out there to do it and nobody was there was not enough money to to hire somebody to fly overseas to do it so if you were a professional you were going to take a you know a, a very big role with coca-cola you weren't but there's was no money in the consulting space there but you had all these people who needed international consulting now that they were out there. Well, so, so what's your date? What are you doing? What are you consulting on? Tax strategies. When you're, if you were tax. So let's just say, let's just Ugh. say. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> Man. So there goes the episode. <laughs> now the rest of the world works very different than the U S but let me use the U S in this yeah. example. If, if you're overseas, a lot of times your contract, you're not paying for anything. Your cars, your drivers, your, your living is all paid for. Sure. But you're being paid four five, $600,000 to be out there so you have all this cash left over but because you're overseas you're not in the you can't do a 401k plan you can't you know and you're getting all this rem and b and it's mm. like what the heck do i do so we had to help people set up international structures be able to put money to work be able to follow them because a lot of times they would wind up marrying somebody from australia and it's well i'm never going back to the u.s i don't really want my how do i get my money into something else that's not taxable in the u.s because i'm not there right you know so we had to you know, how do you meet your obligations of your home country, knowing you're never going to be in your home country? What options are available to you? So that was the type of business it was. Yeah, that's very interesting. It was. There's a lot, there's a lot of folks that do that now, and that's, you know, you can set up your business in whatever. I'm making up a country, Paraguay, because there's no... Oh, not Paraguay. Well, Morocco. Is Morocco. The yeah. Is that the hot one? Yeah. I don't know. The Cayman Islands. I don't know. Whatever. Malta. But you can set it up wherever because so you don't get the federal tax here, and, like, there's a lot of, like... I call it loophole. I don't know if that's right, but I mean, it, it's kind of like if you let's just take a look at the reinsurance companies who reinsure a lot of the U.S. risk. Mm -hmm. it, they set up in Bermuda so that they don't have. It's just more efficient from the tax standpoint to do yeah. business 
being an international company than a U.S. company. Because, I, I mean, in a very tangible way, that's, that's 15, 20%, wherever the difference ends up being, to right. your bottom line, for doing the exact same work. Right. And if you, yeah. and oh, if you okay. have the freedom to do it and you knew what the structures were, you could make those decisions. Right. So that's what we were doing and helping companies. Now, wow. All right. That's it, cool. So it was a new business. So it wasn't like you, you had like Deloitte who would charge you a quarter million dollars to figure this all, stuff all out. Or you, or you could do, you know, you could work with the consultants who would work, you work with Kevin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Kevin, the coffee guy. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, failed comedian doing your, doing your consulting. So we, uh, that's, that's what it was. That's what, and, okay. And then because it was a young and new game, it was very easy to hire anybody. And it was usually young people that wanted to do it because if you had some skill set, you were getting a huge job if you wanted to be out there. So, and you were working on commission only. So they'd hire anybody. So that's how I got yeah, the job. you got to eat what you kill. <laughs> so, okay. Are, are you working with mostly Americans that had transplanted to China? It was all over. Yeah. All, all different countries, different but up, you know, that's cool. I, you know, I got to know superannuation in Australia, RRSPs in Canada. I mean, all sorts of different. Wow. Everybody has their own version of a 401k or the pension program. Oh, that, those are those are country 401k versions. Right. Oh, didn't know that. Do you know that? 401k is a tax code. Nice tax code. Yeah, that yeah. makes oh. sense. It's so an actual their... tax. It's the line or a tax. That's code. just the paragraph name, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think I did know that. Did you All know right. that K stands for Kevin? I would have, I would have assumed. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't, but so anyway, that was a long story. But I, because it was that type of nature, it was easy, and and of course, equity sounded good. But at the end of the day, we wound up getting it. We had equity, we had profit sharing plans, and those programs. Wind up, we, we built up a successful business. We're about $6 million in revenue with good margins. And the equity and profit sharing plan did exactly what the data said it was going to do, which was it took four very good friends who were excited about building the company, creating customer experience, and it put blinders on everybody. And everybody was trying to work the incentive program for what's in it for me, which is what the data said would happen. And we had an exit on the table at the time, and it started at something like $10 million. And eight months later, because of all the, the profit sharing and equity, we wound up with a six-figure fire sale, and the key people got nothing. Wow. So, so this that's how I started what I do now. Yeah, it's a big retention focus now. So, I mean, we're coming close to end of, end of the time here, and I want to make sure we get this in. So... Retention is what you focus on now. We started with Steve Carell, and he goes, that coffee guy's leaving, I'm leaving soon after that. And then <laughs> yep. the company in China, and now, when your own company obviously wrote the book, Buckets, right, just, just titled Buckets, Retention. Buckets, how business legends keep their hustlers. There you go. <laughs> so how do you keep a hustler? Uh, there's a lot of principles at play. Got it. So most people think that incentives or, or the, it's about money. Mm -hmm. What we realized was that there was a lot more psychology to compensation than just a good idea. And when you were able to move into psychology, you were able to take what most compensation is, which is rational ideas. If you do this, then you do that. Sure. Cause, those cause a lot of problems. And I would say they, they wind up being valid because of our conscious mind. It sounds like a good idea. But when we put those types of programs in place, 
you really have no idea if it's going to be a good idea or a bad idea until after it plays out. You got to check the data. Sure. Right. So, yeah, <laughs> if you're, if you're watching your dashboard, <laughs> now you can you can create all the data you want and put a dashboard together. What's supposed to happen? Yeah. And then what happens is a variety of variables, economic, <laughs> controllable, <get> involved. <laughs> right? Then people get involved with the data and ruin it. So you're back to the manure stage. But what winds up happening then is at you know a year later, one person is very happy with the program because they either you know, it drove profits or, or it made them a lot of money. But the other person is usually then has ideas on how it needs to be fixed because it wasn't necessarily fair because of whatever reason. Yeah. And so you're causing all the, this angst and problems with your key people and they lose sight of the bigger picture, which is, you know, there's a lot of money here and we can build a great company. So I loved the CEO of Netflix had a book, No Rules Rules. And in No Rules Rules, he was talking about the st he had terrible turnover problems, and he was all, and he said people were stressed within their organization. And so he went down to Human Resource and he said, "Well, what's the problem here?" And he's, they said, "Well, you know, somebody got a four percent bonus, and somebody got a three percent bonus. Now the three percent was more than the four percent, so that seemed unfair to both parties somehow. Because oh, dollar wise, right? Because uh, dollar wise it yeah. was, but the percentage bothered." that they got less percentage was a bother to one person, but the fact that it was more money was the bother to the other person. Right. And this was, ha they go, how, how often is this happening and how is this playing out at the company? And they said, this is bothering people for nine months. And they said, then what happens? They said, then they stress their next review meeting when we start all over again. And then they go to Blockbuster and then they're out of a job. Yeah. It's a bad problem, all right. So what he wound up doing was he just rid the entire organization of the incentive program and turnover went away and culture thrived and results compounded. Wow. And so you started, you know, you go, whoa, that's, if that happened once, well, where else does it happen? Google did a, a project called Project Aristotle, I think it was the name of it. And they went in to, to find out effective use, workings of teams. Mm -hmm. And they came out with a study that psychological safety was like the number one most important thing for employees to have with each other. Psychological safety. Correct. Tell me about that. I don't know. Brandon well, and I are I'm rubbing gonna, dirt and wounds. I, I'm thinking right now it's the idea that your job is safe and you don't have to worry every day that you're going to get fired for something stupid or because you didn't so, make your... So that could be part of it. You, what, yeah, what's the answer? You can go into Maslow's theories of, you know, of what's not, needs. But, <laughs> but at the end of the day, it was being liked. So the biggest contributor, I mean, all of those, what you just said played a part of it, but being liked was a far more bigger driver in it. And the number one problem they found when they were, because they were asking why's and they were going down deep into the five why's. Five why's, yeah. yeah. Some, somewhere around three, you left, you started leaving the company, but the last one before you left the company was, I was worried we wouldn't hit our incentive plan and that the people below me wouldn't like me and respect me. And then it's, well, why is that important? Well, if they don't like and respect me, I could lose my job and then it'd be my family. Well, why is that important? Because then my family would think, you know, might, would we lose our house or, you know, so it was, then there's where you get to lose your job. And so everybody's a people pleaser. I thought yeah. I was alone here. This is good. All right, so they, so they, just like Netflix, went in and fixed it. And they said, all of a sudden, they found that all the meetings, which used to be about trying to hit the incentive programs and and yelling at people because of the importance of the incentive program came about solving real challenges. 
Well, what they did was they implemented this across eight teams, and they said they saved 440,000 hours of productivity. Oh, my goodness. Yep. You know, it's funny. Is I, I work for a home improvement center store. That <laughs> should go unnamed. That should go unnamed. They're blue. Uh, <laughs> and every meeting was the same. Oh, we didn't hit the mark. We didn't hit this. We didn't hit that. You got to do this. You got to do that. And it's like, you know, at some point, people have to walk in the door. So yeah. as a lumber department manager, I don't know how to make those people walk in the door. Right. To There's, control your numbers. Right. Correct. Yeah. So it's it starts at the corporate level. Like Bingo. You know, I would, I would tell them, hey, you need to have drywall. When a contractor comes in and there's no drywall and there's half of everything they need, guess what? They're going to go somewhere where they can go one space yep. and they have everything. And it's predictable. Yeah, they're orange. Just yeah. Orange. <laughs> they're going to go to the orange spot. Yeah. yeah but, but you could go in and get everything you need. And the other store was always, I called it the 50% store or 80%. You get 80% of what you need and then you had to go to a different store to get the rest of it, mm. which drove me crazy. It's like you can't have yeah. those kind of things to get people to come and shop there. So, no. J- Jack, you, you asked what worked. What works? What works? Ima- We're talking the Great so Recession? Imagine, so the- imagine, imagine, yeah. at the, imagine that you could, ha- you could create an environment where the people could show up every day, work towards what was important to them. The employees are showing up. The employees to show up. Employees. But imagine that they didn't have to have these thoughts and these stresses. Yeah. Imagine that you empowered them to solve the company's problems without worrying about their incentive numbers. Because look what you just said. Everybody was, hey, we didn't hit this number. We did. And that's what was happening at Google, too. All the meetings became about, why can't we hit this number? You're not solving it for you. You're solving it for, you know, because some, somebody in a different room that you've never met wanted you to solve, to hit, to change this. But it didn't make you happy. Yeah, it, it didn't help ex- you. It was the exact opposite. Okay, well, you didn't make your number, so we got to cut hours. Then you have less people. And now, right. you, now it looks even safety. worse. And your number goes up, but your people go down. And Correct. And the weird thing is, like in the lumber department, you have to have three people at all times. You have to have one person drive the forklift, one person spot you, and one person on the other aisle so, to make sure that the thing doesn't fall over. So you're not sure. there now. Go, go. Were you married back when you yes. were there? All right. So let me just ask, what would be important? So let's just say that you were going to be at that company for a long, long time, right? What would What would... That company, what what would be your personal goals as a man, as a family man, be working in the lumber department there? There was a couple things. The main the main reason that I kind of left is because my kids were. I had my son was probably six seven months old, and I was always at work. Okay. And there was a lot of free time involved that had to be done because there just wasn't enough hours, and they cut the staff and everything else. So at the end of the day, your work all still has to be done. So you have to have all your cycle counts in. You have to have all the ordering done. You know, all the paperwork has to be done. So And they made you work Super Bowl Sunday, if I remember. Uh, yeah, that was episodes. another problem. Yeah. I was thinking, yeah. you know what? I am sitting here every single Saturday, Sunday, every party. I miss every single thing because I'm sitting here in this stupid-ass lumber department. <laughs> well, uh, Nobody there. All right, let me change the – let's say – that the hours aligned and you could be with your family. So whatever job it is out there, let's just say that you enjoy doing it and you could find the hours to get the work done that you needed to and you could find the balance in the family. Now, what would you need as a family man for that company to not stress you out so that you would work there for a long time? It would have been, one, because the corporate headquarters was on the East Coast. 
we were on the West Coast and I could never get anything that I needed to satisfy the customer and make it less stressful on me and make it successful. Why, why do you send stuff or why do you hold back product like concrete? Okay, so let's, let's take a look at what the, so if, if the corporation empowered you to make the decisions you needed to run a good department, that you would be happy. Now, is that a fair statement? Yeah, like when okay. I order it, send it. Now, <laughs> now let's go, let's, let's take corporate out of it. What would you need as going back to you as a young family with a six month old, what, what, would you, what would your goals be for your family? Assuming you had a good schedule, good balance of seeing them and working. I mean, I will say this, there was a good opportunity to move up. So you could further your career and get all that. That path was there. I will give okay. them that. So advancement and challenges yeah. and Correct. positions. I don't, okay. I don't want to be a department manager my whole life. So, right. <laughs> you know, I would like to, you know, obviously be able to make more, provide, do all that good stuff. But I'm all about earning your position and getting there and working hard and doing it. It's just when they don't give you the tools and they take it all away from you and tell you it's your fault, that yep. part drives me crazy. It's like I can only do with what's given to me. So, and this is, this is where a lot of conversations go. So you asked me what one is one of the secrets is, is even when you ask people, is they always still give you corporate career answers. Sure. Remove corporate, go personal. If you worked for that company for 10 years, 20 years, what position would you and your family be in? No corporate answers. Just what would your family life look like? I mean, I guess if it, if I got into a position where I was happy with that spot, I would be fine there. It's like I said, it was more the culture of how everything was ran that was just... Yep, you're going back to corporate. I, I know, but I don't know how to get... I know. I know. What's, yeah, so what's a non-corporate answer to what's, what is family? So your kids go to college... So, so what if the company put a program where your kids could go to college? Would that have, would that have been important to you? What, what about your life? Do you have ample savings? Can you, when, can, when would you want to stop working? All those, I think, could have been provided there. I don't have any. So, so this, what he's going through is what most managers or business owners experience. It's tough. Right, because what he's doing is... He, he wants to answer through work. And so, so you asked me what, what works is we go through a process that gets them away from work that starts to, to, to paint the picture in the future of, because like he said, I could have stayed there if I was happy. But everybody has this current story about what's wrong with their current company, right? We, we all want to improve things. We all want the autonomy to improve it. And we all want somebody to fix it <laughs> with your, or yeah. enable us to fix it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you can get the person out of that mentality and get them to paint the picture of, well, my wife wouldn't have to work, my kids would be, my college would paid for, and I'd be retired by 60. So, so you asked what works. Well, if you can go in, get them to paint that picture, align a plan through via via compensation through to get them to that plan now they're coming in to work for that so now what it does is it makes today's problems less complainy yeah because you're going i gotta get everybody around this because i need that to happen we're working towards that let's not worry about the day-to-day and so if you can align people's motivations with what they truly want because they'll tell you what they'll tell you. You know, uh, when I'm speaking, I tell stories of 
when you ask them, they can't even tell you what they want. When you survey them and you get all this data, like all the people read these books, oh, you should do this, or the data says this. But most of the times you're doing a survey and getting the data, they give, them, they, they give you the answer, like the most psychological answer that they feel is... What they think is the right answer. You know, the best version of themselves, yeah. right. Yeah. So people will tell you, people don't leave people, they leave bad managers. Right, that's been, yep. Because that was a big one. That's a yeah. massive one. There you go. Now yeah. there is a lot of it, but that's, that's a lot of the short-term problems compounded, and I would argue that one's stronger than a lot of the other reasons. I tell a story on stage of like the energy companies. So do you ever get your energy bill and it shows you how much you're using versus your neighbor? Yes. I've never seen the, okay. I've never seen the neighbor comparison. Yeah, I get the neighbor bill. They've, they've never seen the mail. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you mean an email? <laughs> yeah. So, so where that came from was the energy companies, they're incredibly burdened with regulation. And so on stage, Jack, I tell the story to get them understanding why it's so hard to, to achieve what they want to achieve is because like the energy companies, they went around and they surveyed people. And what did people tell the energy companies it would take to get them to reduce their energy? Well, the surveys told them, well, if we could save the planet. Turns out <laughs> that, was, that didn't work. So they used to tell people, here's how many trees you could save if you turned off. Then they said, mm -hmm. well, that's not working. We gotta try something else. So they called people and they asked them, what would it take you? You told, you told us it was the environment. You obviously didn't care. What would it take you? Well, if you save me money. So that's another set of answers yeah. that you could get. And guess what? They went and they said, okay, well, remove the trees. Here's how much money you could save if you put that into a, a compounding savings account. Here's how it would be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars for you to benefit you. You'd be an idiot to not do this. Didn't move the needle at all. So a behavioral psychologist came in and said, well, <laughs> don't worry about what they tell you they want. Make them feel. So show them how much energy they're use using versus their neighbors. The results were like 300% more than they ever predicted even possible wow. as far as energy savings. So this, the same thing is, I mean, you kind of see it with, with like what works. It's like you can, many managers will try to do just what I did right there, which was tell me about it. And it's really hard to get out what, what will really work. And so to your point, as we go through, if you, can, if you can align the person with where they're going on a personal level and you can parallel it on the business side of things. Yeah. You can move mountains with motivation and behaviors. Well, and that's wow. what's funny is that was my motivation to do my own thing. Because right. I was tired of dealing with exactly that. And here's, here's the, how old are you when you did this? And I'm, I'm hoping over 28. Yeah, I was thir 30. Yeah, so. 35. Most people won't make sh big changes like that unless there is a, called trauma, but unless there is severe pain to be able to do something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did, when I was early 20s, I did construction work, and I out, went out and started doing my own thing, but I couldn't get my contractor's license. I passed the <laughs> test. I passed the test. I passed everything, had all the requirements, and the guy walked in and said, yeah, there's no way that you have the experience. You're only 21. I said, I started when I was 16. You only need four years. Wow. He's like, I was like, well, where do I go from there? And he goes, well, I'm retiring, and he six months so I don't really care literally told me that yeah. and walked out the door I was like well screw this I'm never so I went and got a job working for the railroad and doing yeah. that and that was bad manager went to Lowe's bad manager yep. and then I was like yeah, screw this I'm gonna do my own thing so my argument there would be when you you know he's he's citing bad managers but he also said well you know I would have stayed there 
And to me, the difference is, what would it, you know, when you ask people, what would it take? Well, if you save money, I would, I would have the reactions. I always say it's usually a byproduct. It's not that they leave because of bad management, but that's what will get the blame. But it could have been avoided. Could tactics have been deployed earlier to help that person kind of parallel their personal to the, to the goals? And then what, what winds up happening, at least in your mind, is you wind up removing a lot of the angst in the short term. You wind up problem solving better, and it creates an environment that is more friendly to stay. Yeah. There's a lot of psychology behind it, but I, I hope that gives you an example. Okay. Let me, let's go back to, we kind of abandoned an underlying theme before. So, yeah, so, so the, fir the first theme was, was how, do you, how do you structure a speech? And so we both went over our opening. Yep. And then I, gave, then I gave you some examples of stories that I told next. And I call that like, so before I say what I call it or what I'm doing after I do an opening, um, let me ask you. So, so now you've got your opening joke. What do you do when you speak next? What's the next section that you go into? I hit them with, I started getting into the topic. So data. Okay data for companies what are you guys using what are you doing you know a little bit of a little bit of engagement and then the plan is this is a setup stage to where they're like yeah you know we we kind of do this we kind of do that what he's saying makes sense you know blah, blah blah and then the setup leads to the punchline of are you doing this though oh my goodness okay oh. so what in this stage are you going into any pain are you not enough okay not enough not enough are you more like more getting them on board with me okay so you're relating relating yeah, it's, yeah now what about the negative consequences are you telling any stories of any like are you finding any and digging into any national known stories uh, like for example i just told you about project aristotle yeah netflix ceo are you finding that are you could, one you, of the secrets in this one that i would argue is the ability to relate the pain to somebody else's story. And yeah. usually you want that to be a well-known story. So you want it to be a company that had bad data and it cost it. Right. So that yeah, you that's can good. I, I go with client stories and nobody really knows my clients and I don't mention them by name. Right. But it's, it's the pain point that people can at least somewhat associate with. Like I have one, I don't necessarily use this in the speech, but I had a client who was doing four hours a week of manual copying and pasting from one spreadsheet to another. <laughs> and then I, I built the thing and it completely eliminated that. It's down to 10 minutes kind of thing. And that Excel situation where people are just sitting there and copying and pasting and getting bored and that's something that's relatable. So I, I would go into the fact that you are missing an opportunity there. Cool, what do we got? So. And here's why I say you're missing the opportunity. You should still be wide at this point in time. If I'm sitting in your audience and I'm not spending four hours a week copying and pasting, then I, I'm starting to disengage. And I did this early in my speaking as I would get into specific examples. And, and it would bite me because people would, who weren't doing the four hours of copying and pasting Excel sheet would cut out. So the opportunity is find a bigger commonality story. So one where, where some type of tech at a, at a company everybody knows caused a big problem. Okay. And if you create that big problem, what happens is then it'll, that story allows them to internalize 
their own story of when they had the problem. And now you have everybody adapting to their own certain pain. And you can only do that by a well-known story. Yeah. So that would be my... That's good. That would be my... If I could say to try something in your speech. Yeah. It would be at that point in time, before you dive into the micro, stay in the macro and give that overall speech that has a negative tech story that everybody knows of. And that's why I use the big companies at that point in time. Yeah. Because, I mean, even the Google thing, it's, I got two employees. I'm not right. Google. But I'm thinking, like, oh, crap. Right. The, you're going, deal. what am I doing with psychological safety? Or this person yeah. felt like, you know, I didn't pay out a bonus. And this person felt gypped. And it was emotionally between us. We weren't talking in the office for a couple of days. Or right. It, it was like walking on glass in the office where we used to be high-fiving each other. Right. I could tell something was wrong. Right. You know, so, so you want to give big stories that allow people to, to paint their own story, if you will. Yeah, so. that makes sense. So, all right, so we, we've, got, we've got the speech. We got into one of the secrets, which I would, I would summarize, and this, correct me if I'm wrong here, but aligning your day-to-day with a corporate goal versus a family or personal goal. The family or personal goal wins every single time because if, if Brandon's trying to fill however many orders a day or whatever it was, that's because somebody in corporate said, hey, you right. got to do this to hit our numbers. And that becomes energy draining, yeah. frustrating beyond belief. And it's just annoying. It's not, fu- it's not what he's there for. Right. People care about themselves. As they should. So we always say any incentive plan you try to put together is ultimately masquerading as your opportunity but it's really in their interest. And that never works. You're never really attracted to this. Daniel Pink called that the extrinsic motivators. If you do that, this, then you get that. But it's really for the good of the company. Yeah. So that's- I'm, I'm totally fine with that concept too. Like the company has to make money. So how- Now people want the company to win. win- <laughs> Let me put it this way. The right people want the company to win. Correct. Winning is a, is a very powerful habit in companies. And I would argue, show me a company that has good culture, good pay, everybody's happy with the incentive. It's a reflection that they're winning. Show me one that's missing, and it's a reflection that they're not necessarily winning. Yeah, it's it's the fact that it's a failure at the top and they blame everybody at the bottom for a dumbass idea. That, that was the part that just used to drive me nuts is they'd come up with these yeah, losing it, it creates a terrible culture. Yeah, it's like, hey, we have this plan, and it's like we already don't have enough people just to stock the shelves, and now you want to add yeah. this incentives. Yeah, it's not even an incentive; it's just <laughs> something else. It's like, you know, like those buttons you have to push. You know, help at the saw. <laughs> you know what people used to do? The manager would go around and push the button because it would have a matrix on it and say, "Hey, this has a high response rate. Like, it takes too long to do it." So they walk every morning with their sheet and go, okay, and they push the button five seconds, push the button five seconds, and they do it till they got that. And the same thing at a drive-thru. Oh, pull up. You know what that does? You pull up, and now it sets the counter so that they're getting cars out every 30 seconds. Whether it's taking five minutes or 30 seconds, yeah. they're just gaming the, the system. system. Yeah. And that's all you're doing when you put out these things that, to me, like I said, at the top, when you, do, you can't get people in the door, that's a marketing issue. It's an everything issue. It's not the people sweeping the floors. and Right. Like, at that level, what are you going to do to make people, I mean, keep the place clean. I totally agree with that. Right. Have well-stocked shelves. 
friendly people and knowledge, and you'll get people come back. Yep. But you got to get them there to start with. So that's my biggest problem with that that level. It's just like you're messing up, and it, the reason we're not making money is because you guys aren't doing it. It's like, yeah. really? But did you, <laughs> yeah. But even that, even in his story, he was implying that the people who were in charge of marketing to get the people in the door were to, at some level of fault. It, so in the corporate world, there's always somebody else to, to blame. blame. Always. Huh, but who true. do you get to get them into the store? Right. Well... And no, I don't think it's. I don't think it's that you're wrong. I think it's. There's always another function that's correct, and it's tied it's, together. So what, you know, what, what's interesting about retention is so much of it is. Is how do you, with all the, moving pieces and everything else, how do you how do you get everybody winning? How do you align right. everybody thinking like an owner to help the company? How do you? Is there an answer? There's not one silver bullet. There can't be. There's not, but you have to you have to create you have to understand the blame game fits into incentive based thinking, if you will, or it promotes it when it doesn't work. So you've got to try and get the culture on board together. One of the easiest ways to do that is to stop getting people worrying about the day to day problems and blame and start getting them focused on being happy, coming to work, allowing them to be their best selves, getting the wrong people off the bus and then allowing people to problem solve in their own best interests. So if his own best interest was, I could stay at this company and raise my family if, you know, if, if, if the circumstances were correct, well then help incentivize that and he will figure out and help the company figure out how to okay. navigate where he's at. And if you empowered him, so this goes back to Daniel Pink's autonomy, you have to empower the people to solve the problems. You have to have somebody to make sure that that's the right person doing the right things to yeah, solve and, the problem. And I, I actually worked, after I left there, I went to a different company, an insurance company, and the owner was very proactive in there. I mean, he was, when I met him, he was 75, and he was still going at 80. Yeah. Well, no, I met him. 80 miles an hour? Yeah, he was full throttle. He lived in Colorado, came back every two weeks. and Wow. But I kicked ass in that company. I came on as just a part-time person. Within a week, I was full-time. Within six months, I took over IT, marketing, and everything else. And one, I remember the one time the son came and goes, if he had to fire everyone in the company, he'd fire me before he fired you. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like you had... Maybe because he wasn't there, but it sounds like you had a lot of autonomy to problem solve. He would tell me what he wanted done, the and, budget. And you'd figure it out in those parameters. Correct. And I'd never done marketing in my life. <laughs> All right. So let me let me ask you this. So so I'm giving people autonomy, right? I work for the big lumberyard, the big insurance, whatever. The big pineapple. And the big pineapple. And I'm giving people autonomy. And I'm saying, you do you. Go have fun. And then they're out, they're out having fun, but they're not driving the company forward. So, a couple of questions. You still have to make good manager business decisions. Is okay. it the right person? Yeah. Can they handle that? You know, is this role an, a, a role that requires somebody to be able to take a problem and problem solve and fix it with a high level of communication? So, if, if hey, I try to fix it and it's going terribly wrong, here's why it's going wrong, here's my plan to fix it. If that, I, I, would get, I would let that person have another chance as long as the reasonings were valid and and they were self-aware and they could handle it. 
But you need feedback. All right. But if they if they are incapable of it, then are they the right person to be at the company? Correct. And, and I will say this to fit in or in that position. Yeah, to fit in the corporate world's not. I don't fit well in that confined lane. Like yeah. here's your lane. You can't get so, out of it. So pineapple, you have to make sure that you are delegating to a person that can handle it and wants to do it. Right. Yeah. Scale agreed. the will agreed. and agreed capacity. Yeah, I I'm very much one of those people. You give me a problem. It's on. Like, that's yeah. where I do my best work. Maintaining it, maybe not my strong point, but, you know, like I said, I need just to be able to go all the tools. See, that's, see, that's like a, that sounds like a, a really good COO. It's, here's the problem. I need somebody who can go in and fix it. Yeah. And Slay the dragon. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So, you don't know if that answers your question, but the, the question is always then, for is it the right person? And are they in the right seat on the, and for the things you're asking them to do? All right, so let's say they are. Let's say they're doing it. We're giving autonomy. We say, Brandon, hey, fix this. And he says, I'll talk to you in a week, and it'll be fixed. We say, great, you're killing it. Everything's good. How do I make that person stay with me? Right. Give them another dragon to slay. <laughs> <laughs> so and this, this is a good question. This is the question. Right. It's because eventually, the more autonomy you gave to him, he can turn around and go, well, I'm doing all the work, and right. and we just added a million dollars. He could just go be a I got a Yeah, I got a $20,000 raise, but you made $900,000 more. Right. So the correct answer is, going back to my first story, is most business owners are terrible at creating what Steve Carell had which was a contract that made it very painful to leave. And, and most business owners are completely oblivious as of how to do it, which is why I wrote the book, Buckets. Okay. So read the book for the answer. <laughs> we won't give it away here, but... Teaser. That's... It's not about... Well, I guess this is more of a question. It's not that the, the big, scary company or the owner for small businesses has to make it so it's painful for the first for the person to leave there's probably a degree of pain but it's more they want to stay because their their incentive their incentives are aligned people want to stay they want to feel valued for the work that they're doing and as a leader you can't get stagnant in that a lot of us you know get comfortable and busy with growth so if if you do have a person that's working for you all of a sudden you can go from a two million dollar company to a 20 million dollar company and and that's very busy. You're making million-dollar investments to try to keep up with the production, the changes, the people. So it's very hard to pause and realize that this person might feel underpaid. You might have seen a, maybe you got a benchmarking report that told you you were in line, so you felt confident about it. But they might be sitting there going, I contributed to this behemoth. And, or nothing. Right, but usually that person also starts getting, that company also starts attracting poachers because it's, Whoa. Yeah, they've made some growth. Right, they're doing let's all get, right. Yeah, let's People, go after yeah. the yeah. second, third, and fourth person in that company and get them over here. Yeah. What are they doing that's capturing market share? Their culture is great. I want to infuse some of that in my company. Yeah. And I can afford it because I'm a bigger company. Right. So we've had that scenario, and people get 100, 200, 250 more than the benchmark told, and wow. another company comes along and offers a lot more money. Do, do, do dollars really tell the story here? At the end of the day, it's more psychological than you think. That makes sense. If you don't have the psychological nailed down, then the psychological becomes they feel stupid for not saying yes to these offers, which is why you need this in place before they get the offer. 
Yeah, and, and to be honest, I still kind of in the school of loyalty. Like, if someone gave me that chance and let me get to the point where I'm elevated to the where I'm at, I take that. That's value to me. And me if too. I'm happy there, yeah. I'm. It's a value to me. So chasing an extra fifty thousand dollars might not be worth it. What, because if, what if it was? A, what if? Let me give you a real example. What if it was two hundred thousand dollars? That would get my attention. Right. Now, I would definitely talk to my current business owner. Right. And now we're in, that's, and this is a problem. That person waited too late. And what happens, because this happens all the time in my line of work. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but. No, no. This, what happens is, as soon as you go to that person and say, hey, I was offered a job for this much more, they immediately go into scarcity mode, which is how could you not be grateful for all that I've done and all the, look at all the investments that I put up in the background because that $200,000 to them is going to go, that's irresponsible. It doesn't make sense economically. I might, is he thinking I'm going to match that? No, and I wouldn't expect a full match. Knowing if I, for the company that I worked for and was really excel, I had full access to all the financials. I, I right. knew, and I'm not going to go to somebody and say, hey, I want to match this. If it was, hey, here's, and to be honest, it's a lot of money, and I'd be stupid to say no to it. But if he said, hey, and I knew that all he could afford was 50, and I was happy there, I would take the 50 and stay. Quality of life. Pause. How do you think, so let's say it's me, I'm your manager, and you came into me, and you were making 100, and somebody offered you 250. How do you think I'm going to feel knowing that you have on your mind that Oh, another 50 is nice. How do you think I want to feel about this beating and you approaching me with this? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because this is... I would say... I feels like... See, yeah, I mean, I would have a legitimate offer to show and say, hey, this is, this is what was thrown at me. All right. And at the end of the day, business is business. If they were offered a contract to make x amount of dollars it was more they would take it in a heartbeat so now i would say most leaders wait until this point the problem is is that most leader like anybody who would be that manager put themselves in that position but that's irrelevant to how they're going to feel emotionally at this time they're going to feel like blackmail and what that does is it it sets people into yeah so fight or flight right so here's what's happened and these are real life examples of what's happened is somebody will meet that fifty thousand dollars but all of a sudden, psychologically, they're going to go, he blackmailed me, so now the next time I have a problem to solve, I'm going to some other people. And all of a sudden, this person feels slighted, and they don't, all of a sudden, I'm avoiding you in the office because now I'm mad at you because emotionally you changed it. You're, I feel like you blackmailed me, and now I'm giving projects to other people and delegating it because I don't want to ever be in that position again. You're playing the long game here. I'm not playing the long game. I'm, this is, I'm not even playing the game. This is what actually managers and leaders and owners are doing. It's not even a game. Oh, man. This is... It's by default. It's default psychology, if you will. So my argument is, why would you risk these feelings and emotions in the first place? Why wouldn't you be proactive about it? But it's very difficult when you're growing a company to stop and, and go, I wonder, I wonder how Brandon's feeling about his, his value these days. Right. It's not a conversation that they, I want to get into, but at the same time, I don't want to have all the negative consequences we just outlined. Yeah, and like I said, it, and I, I will say this, when you go into a lot of places, they're going to offer you the lowest you'll take, or the lowest. So it's kind of a dual, if you pay well, you know what I mean? Yeah. If they know you're getting you at a bargain, and you can make another 150 somewhere else, the 50 shouldn't be... Like I said, and it was well within the range right. of 
it should I get be it. Well, I, I get what it should be. Yeah. But it doesn't change what what we see happening. Because I've seen these exact... I mean... Oh, it, I totally get it. And and to me as a business owner, I wouldn't be... Me personally, I wouldn't be pissed if someone said, hey, I can make a... Go right. for it. Because I can't... One, I can't match it. Right. And two, why would I hate you for wanting to do better and make more? It's just it, I can't the, provide that. Right. And a lot of people will cut ties because they're like, all right, well, if you got that offer, you're just going to be sitting at here. And then as business owners, we're trained to then make the best of it. Hey, Jody got an offer she couldn't refuse. She's super happy about it. I wish her well. And then you move on. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I wouldn't be mad at him. I wouldn't hate him for it. It just, it's, it, it's real life. You know, a lot of key employee losses start like this, which was, oh, we wound up losing our key employee. It, it's, it was a real painful year, but it was so, it was so good that it happened, <laughs> you know, because now we're this, this, and this. Now, theoretically, business owners are trained to psychologically have to deal with a lot and just move forward regardless. So that's the default. It's the only way to go. Always, but, <laughs> yeah, but, absolutely. But in the meantime, a lot of them, you know, there are some stories where it was good. They just, they really should have made the business decision and fired them a long time ago. They just didn't. So they're either reflecting that or it was really painful and they're just trying to move on. And then the, the bigger the company you get without realizing this, the worse the consequences are. So it is not uncommon for me to see a 25,000 person company lose their key player and eight months later they're a 2,500 person company. Wow. And the revenue decline and profit decline matched. Do, do the owners and do the C-suite level folks know that like, oh yeah, we've got this key employee because you know, everyone knows this tax code, whatever. Do they know how impactful that person is to the company? They don't realize the psychology of how to retain somebody. Okay. So because they're ignorant to it, I've seen people lose billion-dollar key revenue, key employees. And it, it has the financial consequence of a yeah. billion And dollars. risk. Right. right. Wow. So is it worth it to pay that person what they... Well, look at the... Look, uh, I mean, topically-wise, the Ravens just paid Lamar Jackson today. So... And that was a 10% revenue deal. Ravens bring in about $512 million a year. Their operating profits are $127 million. Or that's our EBITDA, if you will. Not bad margin. No, and take but that. he just signed for $53 million. Yeah. Or whatever, 52 whatever it was. But that's about 10% of the revenue. So, you know, Microsoft said, famously, a good engineer is worth two to three times their salary. Above that, maybe three to five times their salary. But a key employee is worth 10 to 25,000 times their salary. One person, one decision of the company can make billions of dollars so are they worth it you know there's no there's no way to sense it other than hindsight well yeah <laughs> of what happened but you know the answer would be yes and i saw a really cool statistic the other day which is there's more millionaires as key employees than there are business owners wow you're more likely to become a millionaire as a key person than you are as a owner and most people think entrepreneur is the path to, to wealth no <laughs> at the stress and treading water <laughs> why, why are key employees on vacation <laughs> interesting ah i this is this is fantastic and i appreciate you coming man this is this is super cool i i think all of us out there well brandon and i specifically and everybody listening 
we've either been in this situation as the key employee, we've seen it happen, or we're currently going through it as the owner or some combination therein. And uh, this is super cool. I haven't read a book in a long time, but I might pick up that buckets. buckets. I might pick up buckets. It's a good one. It's a 90 minute read. 90 minute read. Yeah, business owners don't wow, have a lot of time. What if you read it at a third grade level? Is that going impact, to impact my time? That's why you is did, it on audio? Why, yeah, <laughs> right. Is there a slideshow I can do? Well, the, and you, you can speed read the first chapter because it's about Steve Carell. Oh, perfect. <laughs> All right. We can skip but, that one. All right. But let me ask you this question then. So Fine. as we go into when you're closing your speech. Yeah. So two-story lines here. Okay. So when you're closing your speech, what, what's your call to action, if you will? I don't have a good one. I don't have a good one. I need a good one. But yeah. I'm so unsalesy. Yeah. I'm like, hey, if you guys don't have this, I'm happy to help. But if you do, great. You know, it's just the good. facts, ma'am. Yeah, <laughs> it's just the facts, Jack. We haven't done that in a while. So this was one I was just fixing as well. And so I interviewed a lot of speakers who had this. So here was what they would tell you. Okay. Because I'm still working on building mine. They would tell you, especially for yours, is give them a dashboard that if you want a dashboard you can play with or give them some type of free upload out, output system. Everybody would kind of go in and be like, I want to put my numbers, I want to put numbers in and see what it could do. So if you can figure out some type of free tool giveaway worksheet giveaway. that you can get, now all of a sudden you've got every single person in that audience going, oh, I need to, I need to see that, what my numbers look like through your dashboard. Can I give now, them a free month, like a test month? Yeah, that, I mean, anywhere, anywhere you can send them, you can grab their information and they can, they can log on and play with themselves. So you, you, you want to automate it. A free month requires you to do some, either hire somebody to go through and navigate the nuances. Yep. Or you have to come out, you have to figure out a system that's a, a universally applicable that can be automated. And you might have to start with one and move to the other, but... Yeah. But... Okay, so... Because that's what I would... If, if you said, I can automate your numbers, I'd want to be like, well, what would that... What would the, what would that give me? Uh, and if I can go in and put my own numbers in and see what the hell you were going to give me every month? Yeah, I I just before you guys got here was on that exact same sales call. This synchronizes, it reconciles my vendor accounts to my invoices, and we had the exact same conversation you guys are talking about. <laughs> Here's a free month. Yeah. You get one integration. Immediately they called me the next day. Hey, you know, if you want to do these integrations, you know, let me get a guy on the phone and we'll talk about how it all. Oh, you need to upgrade and we'll give you a free month with the upgrade. Get all your integration going. See if there's no risk and that way you can just see if it all works for you. And you got that one month. And then the next month doesn't bill 30 days after the first. So we can refund that money. So you really get two months and we'll get you all set up and working. So it's that exact conversation. Get you in the door. See if it works. Right. See the benefit. And then they just start charging. Hey, you got a pro proof of concept is needed. Proof of concept, for sure. That's a, that's a very salesy way to go about it. it. But that's exactly what it was for me because I don't want to sign up for this thing and it's a... Do all this work when you don't know if it's going to work for you. Yeah, it's a yeah. total crapshoot that it's going to work and synchronize because I've been in the business long enough. Everybody has a sync. Why do you see it as salesy, Jack? Well, the way Brandon was describing it was, hey, like, hot deal on this new used car, you know? <laughs> Everything feels, if you're not a salesperson, everything, to yeah. me, every conversation I, I have feels like a sales call. Same. If I go on an intro call and somebody just books time on my Calendly without me knowing, I'm like, it's, nope. It's so I would just, I would, I would just reframe it, how you're looking at it. We were talking about this even before we started doing it was the, you know, the fact that we're our, we're our own worst buyers. In other words, what we expect our customers to do, if we were in that situation, we would never do it. So like perfect example is... You know, I want people to work with me, 
it's a big commitment <laughs> after meeting with me, seeing it's a good idea and working with me. But then I go to buy a car and I sit there and I huff and puff the whole time about the whole process. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to pay the least amount possible and I'm my own worst enemy. Right. You know, so we, you know, if, if what you have is so valuable and can help people, you can't look at it as a nuance of selling or anything else you're enabling. And if you change the mindset of what that, com what that company was doing, was trying to enable them something they believed in to, to work, if you shift the mindset, the same psychology behind employee retention is you can either have employees who are blaming and finding the faults, or you can switch the psychology and the same position can be something that people can work at for decades. And I get it, because like I said, I, to me, I've always said it, I am very factual. This is, this is the product, this is what it can do, this is how it will fix your problem, yeah. here's the price. Yeah. Yes or no? Yeah. Right. And then if you don't answer, on to the next, because I, yep. I just don't have the mental capacity to talk about a mailbox. Right. And how it's going to change your life. It, this, it either is or it isn't. And that's why you need a book so that, <laughs> so that people can figure out ahead of time if it's, if it's like, hey, there's a lot of merit to this process. So then when they do come in, and I always say this, because I have the book, people will call me and go, when, when can we get started? Yeah. People come in and they go, hey, somebody told me to talk to you. I'm starting from ground zero from this yeah, person. Yeah, right, right, right. And then it, feels like a, it could feel like a sale. It doesn't feel like a sale when people hear... No, when you're coming in saying, give me the answer, I just need it. Right. So, all right, so book is available everywhere, right? Amazon, the most common. sure. What kind of, 10 bucks, what are we talking here? So what is it, 17.95? 17.95, all right. So don't make a billion dollar mistake. <laughs> Invest 17.95, <laughs> get buckets by Mr. Kevin D. Buckets. Pseudo funny. Pseudo funny. Couple jokes. Couple jokes. Not enough pineapples, I've heard. Yeah, but I do. I do go for a low-hanging fruit one hey. in the beginning. All right, that's okay. That, that was a callback. Remember? That was good. That was good. Ed, <laughs> look, and that was a callback to me doing a callback. That's yep. a that's inception of a stand-up routine yeah, that, you got there. You I, shouldn't have quit comedy, my friend. I, uh, so you're saying I got to fire up ChatGPT to write myself a book? Yeah, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> no, I, we're out of beer, so we need to go grab another delicious OMB beer. Thank you again for hosting us, OMB. Kevin, this is such a fun conversation. Every time we talk, it's I learn something new. Cool. Uh, I, I get some new pineapple material, so thank you for joining, man. So there you go. All right. Rock on. If I had a perfect day, I would have it start this way. Open up the fridge and have a tall boy. Yeah. Then I'd meet up with my friends. 